Well, hey friends, welcome to October, one of my favorite months of the year, even when our sports teams are stinking up the place. Uh, before we get to our message today, let me give you a preview of the next two Sundays, which I'm excited about. Next Sunday, October 8th, we have a guest speaker coming. Dr. Ed Stetzer is one of the leading voices on the intersection of church and culture today. He's currently the dean of the Talbot School of Theology. He's a teaching pastor at Mariner's Church in California. He's an author, speaker, podcaster, influencer, and pastor. And so in this important year, we've invited Ed to come and speak to us about the new beginnings facing the church at large and Grace Chapel in particular. Then in two weeks, on October 15th, I'll be speaking on the beginnings of sexuality, marriage, and friendship. Now, these are obviously challenging and controversial topics in the church and culture today. I'm looking forward to taking us back to the beginning to rediscover the goodness and beauty God had in mind when he gave us these gifts. So parents, just a heads up, you can decide if your kids are ready for that conversation in two weeks. So two more good reasons to be excited about October. Who needs baseball anyway? Well, last Sunday, we talked about the popular PBS series, Finding Your Roots, hosted by the Harvard scholar, Henry Louis Gates Jr., in which celebrities are invited to explore their ancestry. And we said that most guests come away from the experience with a renewed sense of pride and purpose when they discover that their ancestors were people of courage or compassion or even nobility. But sometimes, we said, guests are troubled by what they find, and come away feeling confused or conflicted, even ashamed by what they learn about their ancestors. Well, several years ago, a, a popular Hollywood actor was invited onto the show, and he discovered, to his dismay, that one of his ancestors was a slaveholder in the South. He was so troubled and embarrassed by that fact that he pressed the producers of the show to edit that part out of the broadcast. They agreed, but when the truth was leaked, it embroiled the celebrity and the producers in a scandal that ended with the postponement of the new season and the withdrawal of that particular episode. Chances are we all have some troubling or embarrassing deeds or characters in our family history. People or events that we'd rather not talk about. Deeds or characters we would be happy to expunge from the record. But we can't, can we? Our roots are part of our story. They, they, they've shaped the trajectory of our lives and sometimes continue to, for good or for ill. Well, this fall, we're exploring our roots as human beings and people of faith by revisiting the early chapters of Genesis, the book of beginnings. As, as we face the new beginnings in our lives and church, we're hoping to find wisdom for the future by looking to the past. So far, we've considered the beginning of everything and learned that when God does a new thing, it's always purposeful, personal, and progressive. So, so we have good reasons to be hopeful and engaged about the days to come. Last week, we looked at the beginning of humankind and learned that we'll never know who we truly are until we know the one who made us loves us, and calls us his child. Uh, we find our identity in the fact that we were made to be image bearers, co-creators, and sons and daughters of God. 
Now, I won't ask how many of you want to see the Barbie movie after last week's message, but I'm thinking I should be getting some sort of residuals when I mention movies in a sermon. Well, these first two weeks should leave us feeling pretty good about who we are and where we came from. Unfortunately, today, we're going to learn that some of our ancestors made some terrible decisions. Decisions that not only affected their lives and world in some terrible ways, but continue to cause problems and pain in our lives and our world. Things that, like that Hollywood actor, we would love to expunge from the record. But is that possible? Well, let's go back to the beginning and see what happened and what it means for the new beginnings in our lives. Let's jump into Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, as we get started here, we should say a word about some of the ways that Christian people understand the historicity of Adam and Eve. Some take the biblical account very literally, that God created Adam and Eve directly as fully formed human beings, the first and only human beings, from whom all of humankind has descended. And that's been the dominant understanding in the church for thousands of years. In recent years or decades, in light of archaeological evidence and genealogical findings, some have allowed for the possibility that there might have been other human-like beings existing alongside Adam and Eve, but that God bestowed his image upon these two specific individuals who became the ancestors of all other human beings. Some will take it a bit further, driven by DNA evidence in particular, and suggest that there were other human ancestors with the image of God, but that Adam and Eve function as representatives of that larger group, either actually or figuratively. Now, it's a complicated question that involves ancient literary genre, archaeological records, genome sequencing, and theological perspectives on how to interpret the Bible. It's not our purpose to go after all that here, but, but know that there are thoughtful, Bible-believing scholars and scientists engaged in this ongoing conversation. And know that the biblical text allows for a variety of interpretations regarding Adam and Eve. Uh, for our purpose here today, it's enough to affirm that under the inspiration of the Spirit, the biblical story begins with a man and a woman living in a place called Eden. Now, some interpreters have suggested that Eden was an allegorical place, but, but the text pretty clearly uh, identifies it geographically, locating it amid four rivers, two of which, the Tigris and Euphrates, are still known to us today. And interestingly, it's a location that modern archaeologists and anthropologists have referred to as the cradle of civilization. Wherever it was, Genesis tells us that Eden was a kind of paradise. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word paradise. Uh, the travel magazine Condé Nast 
just came out with a list of the best 10 places in the world to live. The top five were Vienna, Copenhagen, Melbourne, Sydney, and Vancouver. Woburn didn't make the list, <laughs> nor did any other U.S. city. Whatever you think of as paradise, to the original hearers and readers of this account, Eden was a paradise. Remember, they were desert dwellers. They were used to sand, not soil. The color of their world was brown, not green. Water was a scarce and precious commodity. So a garden teeming with life, with plants and trees and fruit and flowers and free-flowing water, that was paradise. But more important than the where or the what was the who. What made Eden a paradise were the relationships that were found there. Adam and Eve enjoyed a perfect relationship with their environment, with each other, and with God, their maker. In terms of the environment, the garden was a source of, of delight and satisfaction to them. They gladly took care of it, and it provided more than enough to meet their needs. In terms of each other, the man and woman enjoyed complete harmony and equality. We're told that they were both naked and felt no shame. In other words, they were fully and freely themselves with each other, sharing everything, hiding nothing. And they were just as free in their relationship with God. So familiar and comfortable in His presence, we're told that, that they would go walking together in the cool of the day. <laughs> I'm picturing Jane Austen characters taking a stroll around the grounds of Pemberley Manor or something like that. Well, for that first man and woman, it was paradise, an idyllic state. Yeah, but what about that tree? Some of you are thinking. Now, we haven't talked about the trees yet, so let's jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Well, if Eden was such a paradise, why did God put that rotten tree there? That tree that ruined everything. Well, first of all, we should point out it, it wasn't a rotten tree. It was a fine tree, like everything else in creation. The text tells us it was good for food and pleasing to the eye. So, so why did God put it there and then tell them they couldn't eat from it? Well, the simple answer is, is freedom. By placing that tree in the middle of the garden and asking them not to eat from it, God was granting them the freedom every day to choose life with him or without him. You see, without that tree, the Garden of Eden would, would have been nothing more than a, than a gilded cage. Like guests living it up at the Hotel California. They could check out any time they liked, but they could never leave. They would be prisoners of God's goodness. And that wasn't what God had in mind. He gave them free will so they could choose to love and trust him. As long as they did that, they were free to enjoy every other tree in the garden. 
But the moment they wanted out of that relationship, the moment they decided to do life on their own apart from God, that tree was their ticket out. And tragically, that's what they chose. Now, we won't take time to look at it all. Most of us are familiar with the story. How Satan, speaking through the serpent, tempts the woman to question God's intentions, to doubt God's goodness. Let's jump down to to verse 4 of chapter 3. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, whether that conversation took place literally or figuratively, the serpent suggests that God is somehow limiting them, keeping them from becoming like him. That was a lie. God's intention from the beginning was that the man and the woman would be like him, which is why he made them in his image. The only thing God wanted to keep them from was evil. See, up until that moment, they had only known good, beauty and harmony and abundance and life, because they were living in relationship with God. But then the serpent came along and offered them another option, life without God. And they took it. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. The writer wants us to know that that Adam is right there with her when this decision is made. Adam shares the burden for this decision. In fact, he was the one who received the command in the first place. But he doesn't object. Instead, eats the fruit with Eve. And that changes everything. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And when God came looking for them to enjoy their evening constitutional, the man and woman hid from him. And when God asked what happened, they dodged and deflected, blaming each other and God for the mess they had made. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they didn't just taste apple or whatever the fruit was. What they tasted was evil. What they tasted was shame, fear, guilt, isolation, conflict, things they had never tasted before. That day, Adam and Eve acquired the knowledge of evil, the experiential knowledge of evil, like a child who acquires the the knowledge of hot by touching a live flame. See, it wasn't the tree that was evil. It was their choice that was evil. The decision to reject God's love and life. And in the end, that's what evil is. Evil isn't a thing or a force that's out there somewhere. Evil is simply the rejection of God and his love. The the negation of all that is good and true and beautiful. Evil is what we're left with 
when we declare our independence from God and choose to go go our own way without him. And that's when sin entered the world. Because sin is just evil personalized. It's a person's decision to think, speak, or act apart from God. When we hear the word sin, we think of this long list of do's and don'ts. Things we're supposed to do and things we're not supposed to do. But sin isn't really about breaking rules. It's about breaking relationship. It's about breaking trust with the God who made us and loves us and wants the best for us. And once sin entered the world, death followed right behind. Not as a punishment for breaking the rules, but as a consequence of breaking the relationship. Because when we cut ourselves off from God, we cut ourselves off from the giver and sustainer of life. Like an astronaut who's lost his connection to the mother ship, we find ourselves adrift in the cosmos. And it's only a matter of time before our oxygen runs out. The man and woman lost so much that day. They lost their free and easy relationship with God. They lost the equality and intimacy of their relationship with each other. Their joy in childbirth would now be tainted by pain and anxiety. Satisfaction in their work would be compromised by frustration and exhaustion. Nothing would work quite the way it was originally intended to work. Sin and death had spoiled everything. And now that the man and woman had acquired the knowledge of evil and the propensity to choose it, a propensity they would pass on to their descendants, God couldn't let them stay in the garden and eat from the tree of life, or or they would become immortal sinners who would ultimately destroy the good and beautiful garden they'd been given. So, unlike the Hotel California, now that they had checked out, they would have to leave. The text tells us, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the men out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a sad story and and, and a lot to, to comprehend. Maybe an illustration will help right about now. A parable, actually, written by a Christian author named Sheldon Van Auken a colleague of C.S. Lewis. It's the story of a a dog named Gypsy, and it's called The Day of the Rabbit. Let me read it to you in Van Auken's words. Gypsy was a beautiful collie living on a large estate with her master. Gypsy had hundreds of acres to roam in, hills and woods that were full of streams and rabbits and every kind of thing a dog could enjoy. She had warm shelter and good food. The only real expectation was that she would love and trust her master. To come when he called, to stay by his side. None of these expectations were difficult and, in fact, seemed a part of her dog nature. 
There came a day when Gypsy was out in the hills, and two things happened at once. Her master called her, and a rabbit scurried across the hill in front of her. Gypsy turned and ran toward the master as she had always done, but then she stopped. It entered her mind that she didn't have to obey. What did her master know about rabbits anyway? This was her estate as much as his. She had every right to run and chase rabbits if she wanted. She was a free dog. These thoughts raced through her mind as she stood there for a moment. The master called again. The rabbit raced across the hilltop. Gypsy made her choice. She turned and took off after the rabbit. A few hours later, she came home. Her master was waiting for her, but she didn't rush up to him, wagging her tail as she had always done. This time, she slunk down low, tail between her legs, and went right to her corner. She knew she had disappointed her master. But she also knew something else. She didn't have to obey. And that knowledge was a thrill in her heart and a salt taste in her mouth. For a few days, she was obedient, but soon there was another rabbit, and she didn't think twice about chasing after it, even when the master called her back. And after a while, it didn't even matter if there was a rabbit anymore. She simply ran when and where she wanted to. The master still loved her, but could no longer trust her. So Gypsy spent most of her days in a pen and walked with a leash around her neck. Her freedom was gone. Once in a while, the master gave her another try, an opportunity to obey, but she always chose to run. The master could have given her away in exchange for a more obedient dog or put an end to her running with a single shot from the rifle in the corner. But he chose instead to give her more opportunities in hopes that she would learn to obey and be free again. One day, the master and Gypsy were out for a walk in a new set of woods far from the estate. As they were returning to the car, Gypsy suddenly wheeled and ran into the woods. The master called with a sharp note of urgency in his voice. But Gypsy's ears were dulled now to his voice, so she kept running deeper and deeper into the forest. The master called and searched for hours, but finally gave up and went home. Lost Gypsy wandered the woods and roads alone. Her coat became dirty and matted with burrs. She often went hungry. Landowners threw rocks to chase her away. And eventually, she wandered too far to ever find her way home. When she had puppies, they followed her wandering ways. And having never known the love and care of a master, it never occurred to them to look for a home. This is the way Gypsy chose on the day of the rabbit and continued to choose until suddenly there was no more choosing. Gypsy's story, of course, is Adam's story. And Adam's story is our story because we've all inherited that propensity to choose evil rather than good. Now, we never think of it that way. We tell ourselves that that we know better, that that God is is keeping something from us, something fun or desirable or meaningful. When really, all God's trying to keep us from is evil. 
And all he wants for us is goodness and freedom and life. So that's where it all began. Evil and sin and death. The new beginning was off to a disastrous start. But something else began there as well, there in Genesis chapter 3. It's not as obvious as all the dark things that are happening, but in the midst of those dark things, we get our first glimpses of grace, of God's surprising kindness and undeserved favor. Uh, For one thing, Adam and Eve don't die. Now, I suppose you could say they began to die, since that would be the ultimate outcome of their broken relationship with God. But they didn't die that day. Like Gypsy's master, God gave them more time, more opportunities to choose life with him. For another thing, God goes with them. God doesn't throw them out of the garden to fend for themselves. He follows them out the gate. God shows up again in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and in every chapter of human history right up to this present day. In spite of their foolishness and ingratitude and outright rebellion, God doesn't give up on them or on us. For a third thing, God promises a rescue. Again, it's not obvious. It's it's tucked into the list of curses and consequences. But speaking to the serpent and and the evil one who, who sent him, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Theologians call it the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. And it's there right at the beginning. The offspring of the woman would be none other than the God-man Jesus, born thousands of years later to a virgin named Mary. God in the flesh, come to find us and show us the way back to our Maker. Listen to what the New Testament tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. (laughs) That's exactly what happened there in Genesis 3, right? Uh, The beginning of sin and death. But, But something else began in Genesis 3 with this promise of a coming Savior. Now, we don't have time to tell the whole story. But thousands of years after the first Adam, another Adam appeared, a man made of the same stuff. Thousands of years later, there was another garden, this one called Gethsemane. Thousands of years later, there was another tree, this one in the shape of a cross. And thousands of years later, there was another choice. But this time, The man chose trust. Not my will, but thine be done. And like the first time, that choice changed everything. Romans 5.17 explains it for us. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, 
How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? The sin and death that came with Adam and Eve's decision in the Garden of Eden would be overcome by the grace that came with Christ's decision in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that tree that looked for all the world like a tree of death would become, when Christ chose it, a tree of life for all who would believe. You see, unlike Gypsy's master, our master followed us into the dark wood, into our suffering and even our death in order to bring us home again. So what does all this mean for our new beginnings? Well, simply this. In every new beginning, we have an opportunity to choose life instead of death, good instead of evil, and trust instead of fear. In this new season of our lives and church, in your new season of school or work or family, you have opportunities to choose life instead of death, good instead of evil, and trust instead of fear. C.S. Lewis once said, There is not one square inch of planet Earth that is neutral. We are always and everywhere choosing life or death. This year, we get to choose how to spend our time and money. We get to choose how we'll work and play, how, how we'll treat the people around us, how we'll handle the, the temptations that come our way. Every day, in a thousand ways, we have the opportunity to choose life with God or without God. And as we've learned this morning, every one of those choices matters. Remember that Hollywood actor wishing there was some way to undo what his ancestors had done, to be free from all that guilt and shame? Well, it turns out the past can't be undone, but it can be forgiven. It can be redeemed. And he, that actor, and we can be new and better people if we choose Christ. The New Testament puts it this way. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And that new creation happens every time a person chooses to trust and follow Christ. Trusting Christ to forgive their sins and failures and following Christ into a new and better future. That's what happened for every person we saw baptized earlier in the service today. Uh, one of them, Jack, tells this story. As a child, I attended church weekly, but never heard about having a personal relationship with God. As I got older and went about daily life, I was driven by goals, dreams, and a desire to succeed. I believed I was accomplishing many positive things, but all along I was driven by pride and insecurity. About 15 years ago, through ego and greed, I let it all slip away. I hit rock bottom with nowhere to turn. Kathy tells this story. I grew up with an obligatory faith that I never really understood. I didn't have any type of relationship with the Lord, and I stopped attending church as soon as I was able. As I look back now, 
I was like a rebellious child, angrily pushing away the father who only wanted the best for me. Alcoholism played a big part in my story, blocking any type of connection I could have had with the Lord. Well, both of them go on to tell how, through a variety of circumstances and then the witness of Christ followers, they came to understand and accept God's love for them. They came to put their faith in Christ's life and death and resurrection. Jack says, That was when I learned what dying to self and surrender to God were all about. These days, I'm happy to say that I'm faithfully following Christ and continue to grow closer and to turn it all over to Him. Kathy says, In a worship service in 2019, I felt an overwhelming wave of love and surrender enter my heart. I began crying joyful tears, and I knew at that exact moment that I was ready to walk with the Lord. Those sound like new beginnings to me. Is there something in your past you wish you could be free from? Are you carrying around a burden of guilt and regret and and maybe shame? Bring it to the cross. Bring it to Jesus. You can be forgiven. You can be free. A new creation in Christ. If you'd like to know more about that, it's not too late to join the Alpha Course on Thursday nights. If you found that new life in Christ but have never been baptized, you can check out the Explore Baptism class happening over Zoom tomorrow night. You can be baptized later this month. And if this week you should find yourself facing a choice of any kind, by God's grace, choose life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being a God we can trust, a God who wants only good for us and for the world around us. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times we have chosen poorly in small and big ways, in ways that do harm to ourselves and to others and to your work in this world. Thank you for forgiveness offered freely through your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for the freedom to begin again, to follow you into new and better ways of living. As we head out into this new week, Lord, with your help, may we stay by your side and come when you call and follow where you lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.